0: If you've read through the Bible all the way through, maybe using a yearly Bible reading plan, I have no doubt that you've come across passages where it's easy to lose focus. Uh, Maybe a genealogy, and you start reading through a long list of names, and you start wondering, why is this here, and how does this apply to me? What's the significance of this in God's plan? Uh, Some of the passages that sometimes make us lose focus, uh, they're just difficult to understand. Some of them, you wonder how they apply to our situation today. We come in the midst of our study of Exodus to Exodus chapter 22. And it is uh, a portion of laws that as we read them, we may think, there's, there's not a lot in here that directly applies to the way our society works today. But I think that as we look at them and and see the principles behind them, we will see uh, how they can apply to our situation today. And even above and beyond that, we can see what they teach us about God and about his character. And so I hope that uh, this, this time in this passage of Scripture will be profitable to us. It is God's Word. And according to Paul in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's all profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so let's read beginning in Exodus 22 and verse number 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price, and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. Do not allow a sorceress to live. Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal is to be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord must be destroyed. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset. Because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your sheep. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. You are to be my holy people. So do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come before your holy word tonight and that coming before your word, you can instruct us in the ways in which we should live, in the ways we should walk. And Lord, that you can teach us more about who you are in your holy character. Lord, help us as your new covenant people, as the church of Jesus Christ, to be a holy society, a holy church as you desired for your people of Israel to be a holy community of long ago. Father, bless this time and may your spirit teach us in it. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. As we look at these laws and we think about how they all fit together, that as we read through them, you probably noticed this is a a wide variety of laws, isn't it? Uh, Some of them, it seems, okay, how does, how do these all fit into a certain category? And commentators have wrestled with that. I, I read several different commentaries, and they all offer different suggestions about uh, why certain laws are arranged the way that they are. And, and in fact, in, in particular, these laws, why certain ones are grouped together. And uh, there's not an overriding reason why some of these are grouped together. Some of them are clearly uh, grouped and related together, such as uh, beginning in verse number 22, or 21 actually, when it starts talking about not oppressing a foreigner and not taking advantage of the widow or the fatherless. And then in verse 25, it moves into not uh, charging interest when you lend money to those who are in need. And so that whole section of laws deals with the vulnerable in society, whether it be a foreigner, uh, a widow, uh, an orphan, someone who is poor. So all of those, you can see how those relate to one another. But then you also have other uh, laws in here such as um law against bestiality in verse number 19 or we have a law against uh, sorcery in verse number 18. And so some of them you wonder okay how what's the arrangement of these? And if I were to put a a large overriding principle on all of these laws I would say that they're here to arrange a a holy society for God. In other words, these laws have been given by God through Moses to teach the people how they are to live and how they are to arrange a holy society before God. And I think we can see that emphasis in the very last verse that I read, in verse number 31, where Moses says, says of, from God, you are to be my holy people. And then he gives a specific law about what they are to eat and not to eat. But the overriding principle there, to be God's holy people, I think can apply not only to that law in verse 31, but also to many of the laws around it. That that the people of Israel would be God's holy society, his holy people. And what does it mean to be holy? Well, it means essentially to be set apart, doesn't it? To be holy is to be consecrated, to be set apart unto God. And so when God rescued Israel out of Egypt and he entered into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, he is setting them aside as his special people out of all the peoples of the earth. And so they're not to be like everyone else. They're not to be like the Canaanites. They're not to be like the Egyptians. They are special. They're unique. They're God's consecrated holy people. And so the way that they live, the way that they interact with one another in society and the way that they worship God, all of that goes into uh, creating a holy society that is to be in covenant with a holy God. And so each of these commands, even if they're not directly related to each other, they're all related to that principle of living before God as a holy people. And so in verses 16 and 17, we see a specific command about a man who seduces a young woman who is still a virgin, and they have sexual relations And the law states that if this happens, that he is to marry her. He is to pay the bride price and marry her. But if her father does not want to give her in marriage, maybe he doesn't approve of him, maybe he doesn't like this man, approve of his character, whatever it is, the father has the right to say, no, I'm not going to give her in marriage, but he is still responsible, that is the young man, he is still responsible for the bride price. And, and so some commentators have wrestled with this command and have asked the question, okay, is this, is this more about the money or is this more about the, the morality of the, the sexual relations that's going on here? And honestly, I don't think you have to make a choice between the two. Because I think they're related, especially in Old Testament, ancient Israel society, they're related. And I think they're related in this way. This command was intended to to protect against a couple of things. First of all, it was intended to, to put boundaries around proper sexual relations. So it was intended to put boundaries around proper sexual relations. Why? Because what is God's plan? God's plan, his ideal, is the pattern that we see in Genesis chapter 2, isn't it? In Genesis chapter 2, one man, one woman, they are joined together in covenant, in oath to one another and before God, and then the expression of that oath and of that covenant is the physical union that they have with one another. So so the, the covenant is foundational, and the sexual union is, if you will, the sign and seal of that covenant union. And so when someone seeks to go around that process, if you will, when someone seeks to to enjoy the, the pleasures and the benefits of sexual relations without the accompanying responsibility of covenant and of providing and caring for this young woman for the rest of her life, God says, no, I'm going to put boundaries around that. And so if I were to say, what is this fundamentally about in verses 16 and 17? It is fundamentally about protecting the family and protecting the vulnerability of a young woman who would be left on her own now no longer a virgin, no longer uh, in this position in Israel, now in a, in a more vulnerable position. And, and the father also would have lost out on the bride price for a virgin daughter when she was betrothed to a young man. And so this was to, to protect the vulnerable in society and to make sure that, that this young woman was provided for and cared for for the rest of her life. Now we, we look at it from the lens of modern society, and it's, it's hard for us to think about it through the lens of ancient society. But in ancient society, women did, they didn't go out and get a job at Walmart or at McDonald's, you know, to provide for themselves. That just, that wasn't the way that ancient Israelite society worked. In ancient Israelite society, in many ancient societies, women were dependent on either their fathers or their husbands for their source of income, for their source of sustenance, for their protection, for their future security. And so for a young man to say, you know, I'm going to enjoy Uh, the pleasures of sexual union, but I'm not going to provide for you for the rest of your life and care for you as a wife, God says, no, uh uh-uh. You're not going to do that. In other words, no pleasure without accompanying responsibility. No pleasure without accompanying responsibility. And that principle even though we don't deal with marriage in this exact same way today we don't we don't talk about bride prices anymore we don't op, we don't arrange marriages like this in modern society but this principle of of pleasure without responsibility is one that i think can directly apply to our current situation can't it and today we have a situation in culture at large but Sadly, even among Christians, in which many, many Christians, a growing number of Christians, this opinion is increasing in the church, where it is okay, it's fine to have premarital sexual relations, and who cares about the commitment? Who cares about the commitment? This is just about, hey, let's have fun, let's have pleasure, let's get to know it, let's try this out, let's live together for a while, let's try this out and see if it's going to work. Which is kind of funny, isn't it? Because what are you doing? You're saying, let's, let's try out and see if we can have a lifelong commitment together without a commitment to one another. You can't do that, can you? You can't, you can't practice having a lifelong commitment to somebody without having a lifelong commitment to somebody. So it doesn't work that way. And so we have a whole society that says, pleasure first, commitment later, maybe but God says, no, you're to care for one another and you're to commit your lives to one another. And the the privilege and the blessing of sexual union between a man and a woman is reserved for marriage and it's reserved for a relationship of covenant union for life in which the two care for one another and provide for one another and watch out for one another for the rest of their lives. So no pleasure without responsibility, I think is a, a principle that we could draw from verses 16 and 17. Verse 18, I think, is fairly straightforward in the sense that in ancient Israel, sorcery was outlawed. Sorcery was wrong. What is sorcery? In the ancient world, you basically had two kinds of magical practices, if I can put it in those terms. You had divination and you had sorcery. And both of them were outlawed in God's holy word, divination and sorcery. What's the difference between the two? Divination was essentially using pagan means to try to find out the future or to find out knowledge. So you're, you're trying to divine, to, to, to gather, to find out knowledge, usually about the future, about what's going to happen. That was against the law in God's word. But then you also have sorcery, which is what this is dealing with. And sorcery was viewed as an even darker form of pagan magic. And sorcery was not seeking to just find out what was going to happen. Sorcery was attempting to manipulate what was going to happen. So sorcery was more about, let's, let's try to influence events. Let's try to influence Let's try to influence the future. Let's try to change things to our advantage. An example of that attempt is when uh, Balak of Moab hires Balaam and says, I want you to curse these people. In other words, I want you to use sorcery to put a curse on these people so that bad things will happen to them. That's that's not just wanting to see what's going to happen in the future. That's trying to influence events, influence what's going to happen. And Balaam found out very quickly you couldn't mess with God's people without God's approval, right? But sorcery, this, this using a pagan means, whether it be magic, the dark arts, pagan worship, whatever it is, all of it was against God's holy word because it tried to it tried to undercut really the sovereignty and the deity of God. Sorcery is an attempt to be God. It's an attempt to manipulate things and to rule over others for our own ends. It's an attempt to try to be God and using illegitimate pagan means to do so. And according to God, the penalty for sorcery is death. Why? Because it's essentially false worship. It's false worship, it's paganism, and it's attempting to control things as if someone wants to be God. Is there any modern application to that? Well, we're, we're living in a time that is seeing a, a re-recurrence, a re-more a interest in black magic and the dark arts, witchcraft, other things like this. And and so obviously that is an element that we need to stay away from because there are principalities and powers, aren't there? There are forces of darkness that are at work in this world. And any of those pagan things, dark magic, black magic, sorcery, witchcraft, any of that is trying to trying to gain power trying to gain influence, trying to gain control over the future, trying to gain control over people, and to do so without God. And generally for selfish ends, to seek power or influence over other people. And so it is wrong. Can we have, is it wrong to use other means to try to manipulate people or to manipulate the future? sure i think we can even apply this to not even just necessarily black magic or dark arts but we could apply it to even other illegitimate illegitimate means of trying to be god of of trying to control things that are not meant for us to control what about and maybe maybe i'm stretching the application here i don't i hope i'm not but what about genetic engineering or biotechnologies where we're using our own scientific knowledge, technology, to try to be God. To try to, to change the way something's going to happen. What about, what about we do an ultrasound and we see that this baby has Down syndrome and through that use of technology, we decide that we're not going to have this baby. That is seeking to manipulate Events, isn't it? Seeking to manipulate events, change the future, alter things that don't seem to be working out in our favor, and we want to change them to work out in our favor. I think technology can very easily slip into this prohibition. And so today, we're using digital technology, biotechnologies, essentially to practice sorcery. And I think we need to be on guard against that as Christians. And we need to ask serious questions as the church. We need to ask serious questions about how the Bible relates to technology, how it relates to increasingly rapidly developing technologies in medicine and in in bioethics. We have to think about this as the church of Jesus Christ. And at what point do we cross over that boundary of letting God be God and trans- transovering into we want to be God. And we want to manipulate things in our favor. I think we have to be careful about that. Verse 19 is very clear. It is against the created order. Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal is to be put to death. This is totally and contrary to the created order of God. It's against natural law. It is It is demeaning to human beings as a race, at the end of creation, God pronounced it was very good after he created human beings. Genesis 1, and 27 says that only one part of God's creation is made in the image of God, and that is human beings. And so essentially to participate in a practice like this is to dehumanize ourselves. It is to dehumanize ourselves, and it is to to diminish and reduce us to nothing more than an animal who has animal instincts. And it is worthy of death, according to God's law. Verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord must be destroyed, put to death. God's ban of punishment, abomination resides on that person who makes a sacrifice to another God. And that's directly related to the first and second commands, isn't it? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any images of any things and bow down before them. So this has to do with the true and proper worship of the Lord God. And then in verses 21 through 27, we get into a, a series of verses that have to do with the way we treat one another. I think these are fairly straightforward and fairly clear. And I think they teach the overriding principle that we are to look out for one another in society, but especially those who are more vulnerable. Especially those who are more vulnerable in society. And and who are those people in ancient Israel? And even like today, there are people like foreigners. They're people like widows, those orphans, those who are fatherless. And so Moses says in verse 20, 21, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner for you were foreigners in Egypt. Almost every time in the Bible that God instructs his people how to treat foreigners, he reminds them that they were foreigners in Egypt. Over and over again, remember who you were. Remember how you were treated. Remember, you were enslaved in Egypt. In bondage, cruel, you don't want to treat others that way. And the, the foreigner in Israel was not just someone who was passing through, like a traveler, although clearly intended to show love and compassion to them as well. But this particular person, the foreigner, this word that is used here is of more of a permanent resider, more of a permanent resident, who is not a native Israelite who has come in to live, to work, to work the land, and is choosing to live among God's people, the Israelites. And and so special care is to be given to them. They're to be offered dignity and, and protection under the law of God. In verse 22, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. So those who are more vulnerable in society, those without care, those without provision, those without protection, And notice what he says in verse 23. If you do, if you do take advantage of them and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. Why? Because God cares for them, doesn't he? You can read all the way throughout scripture and you can see God's heart for the weak and vulnerable in society. God cares for them. And he says, my anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. What is this? This is eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, isn't it? You mistreat widows and fatherless, God says, I'll make your family widows and fatherless. So the punishment fits the crime, essentially, eye for eye. And verses 25 through 27 has to deal with money and the lending of money. But I think, too, it is fundamentally about caring for others who are in vulnerable positions in society. And so verse 25 says, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. So this is not necessarily a a carte blanche prohibition of all charging of interest, but this is, at least in this particular command, it is specifically targeted to no charging of interest to those who are in vulnerable position, to those who are in needy. And here's the amazing thing is that in our society today, money lenders are doing the exact opposite of the intention of what this command is about. To those who are the poorest, to those who who need the help the most, money lenders charge them the most interest. Some of these payday loan places, title loan places, the interest that they charge is ridiculous 40, 50% interest. And so they're taking advantage of the people who need help the most. And I understand that they need to protect their investment. They need to make good choices in terms of managing risk. I understand all that, but there needs to be a line that you shouldn't cross, right? In terms of taking advantage of people, taking advantage of people who are in desperate situations, in verse 26, it says, If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, essentially kind of like uh, a, a, a pledge of uh, a work agreement, perhaps someone someone might... One of the commentaries I read suggested that somebody might show up for work in the, in the morning and say, I'll work for you all day, and here's my coat as pledge of that. I'll work for you all day, and obviously in exchange for a day's payment... But, but here's my coat as a pledge that I will stay and I will work all day. And so then they would work all day. They were to receive, obviously, a day's wage for that. But this command says, make sure you give him back his coat. Why? Because, obviously, as a day laborer, living from day to day, he doesn't have anything else. This is his only blanket at night for the cool of the night. Make sure that he gets it back at the end of the day. Otherwise, they'll cry out to me and I will hear and I will be compassionate to them. And so caring for the vulnerable in society. And by the way, just as a quick application, going back to verse 21, caring for the vulnerable in society. I think we have to ask ourselves as Christians in America, what is the best way to help and be a blessing to foreigners? our country. And this is a hot button issue, isn't it? In our, in our culture today, immigration, it's a huge issue. And there are, there are people on all sides of the, the map on that, on, on how to respond to that. And there are clearly many things that we have to, to think about in thinking about immigration. We have to think about protecting our country from terrorism, we have to think about protecting people from criminals. We have to think about these things, but we also have to think about this principle too, don't we? That, that we need to be welcoming to people who are in need and many people who are coming seeking asylum because they're fleeing terror and they're fleeing for their lives. And so we need to think about how best to balance all these things and still be a loving and opening society. The The passage concludes in the last few verses with more of our relationship to God and honoring God with the way that we worship and with our daily lives. And so verse 28 says, do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. So be careful of saying things or even doing things that could be seen as being blasphemous toward the Lord your God. But also, isn't it interesting how closely it lines up God and the authority of the ruler of your people? And I think that's one of the reasons why in the fifth command, where God says, honor your father and mother, that essentially it is an extension of the first four commands in our relationship to God, because our parents are God's representatives on earth. And other authorities are are God's representatives on earth. And so this is closely related to each other, the way that we treat God and the way that we treat those who are over us in authority. Verses 29 and 30 have to do with the way that we honor God with the first fruits of our increase. Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats, You must give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your sheep. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. In other words, this goes all the way back to the Passover, by the way, that God is to be honored with the firstborn. Remember how the firstborn was saved, was rescued in Egypt when God passed over All the firstborn of the Egyptians, they died, but the firstborn of the Israelites, they were spared. But God says they belong to me. They belong to me. And so throughout the Old Testament, the firstborn of animal and of people belong to God. Now, for animals, that meant a sacrifice of worship to God. But obviously the Scriptures are against human sacrifice, and so the giving of the firstborn to God was not in sacrifice. But it could be in dedication to service, such as we see with Samuel. Or it could be that the firstborn was redeemed through an offering. and In a sense, a substitute given for the firstborn, just like a sacrifice was given on Passover, for the life of the firstborn. But the first fruits belong to God. So of animal, of people, and also of grain, of what's in your granaries, what's in your vats, the best of it, the first fruits of it belongs to God. Honor God with what he has blessed you with is the principle. And then verse 31 ends with this this call to be God's holy people. So, do not eat the meat of an animal torn by a wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. And you think, what's the purpose of this command? This, and this probably relates to many of the other commands that we'll see in other places in Scripture that have to do with what is clean and what is unclean in terms of what an Israelite could eat and not eat. And so in Leviticus 11, for example, you see a whole list of foods that are considered unclean that the Israelites were to not partake of. And one of the the categories of foods that would be considered unclean is uh, the meat of an animal that had already been killed by another animal. And there is a prohibition against that. Now, was it okay for for God's people to eat meat. Yes, it was certain meats. So cattle, sheep, lamb, that is all within what is right and proper for meat, for God's people to eat. Certain meats were outlawed, such as meat from pigs and other meats, but there were clearly meats that they could eat, but they had to kill it. They had to put it to death. And there are probably several reasons for this command here. One of it, one of them is probably to make sure that the meat is not tainted with blood in any way. So when the Israelites killed their animals to eat the meat, they would make sure that the blood was drained in a certain way so as they were not eating any blood because it was against God's law to eat the blood from the animal. So that could be one part of it. But I think an even deeper fundamental part of it is who God made us to be. And God did not make his human beings created in his image to be scavengers. If you read Leviticus 11 and you look at all the unclean animals, every single animal that would be considered a scavenger is unclean. In other words, every single animal that gets its food from that which is already dead and just goes out and scrounges for it, scavenges for it, it is considered unclean. Every single one. God's people are not scavengers. God's people are to eat, but they're to eat in a way that, that shows that they, have, they, they respect life. And even in the killing of an animal, they're respecting the life of that animal. And they're not just going around scavenging and they're not, they're not defiling themselves by touching that which is dead. And so it is part of the created order, I think, in that human beings are okay to eat meat, but they're not okay to eat scavenged meat. They're not okay to eat that which another animal has already torn. And so where are they to throw it? They're to throw it to the scavengers throw it to the dogs. And in ancient Israel, dogs were considered unclean. Why? Because they were essentially scavengers. They were not household pets where they came and ate out of a bowl. Uh, In ancient Israel, dogs were wild. They were wild dogs and they went around just scavenging whatever they could find. And in other words, God's people are not dogs. So throw that meat to the dogs. So, be dignified, be holy in the way even that you eat. And isn't there even a principle in the way that Paul talks about that in the New Testament? 1 Corinthians 10.31, probably a verse we've all memorized. So, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, right? So, be God's holy people. All of these laws relate around that principle to be a holy, set apart, consecrated people for God in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we live our lives in in society, even in our food and our our cultural habits of the way that we eat in the way that we go about arranging marriages in in the way that we worship all of it is to be a part of living as a holy people before God. And so it is it is my prayer that that we would as God's people today, not a nation like Israel, not a not a theocratic nation as this, but as God's church today, that we would see in this the character of God, that God cares for the fatherless, he cares for the oppressed that he cares for the family and protecting the family and making sure that that the family is protected against those that would seek to undermine it for their own pleasure. God is about um, holiness. He's about being worshiped, him and him alone. He, He is, this is who he is. He is the holy God. And so I pray that we'll learn more about him and that we'll seek to emulate that character in our lives and be his holy people. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you have taught us what is right and good. You've given us examples in scripture of what is holy and what is good. You've called us to become your people. You've called us to be holy. And so, Lord, as your word teaches us, And the New Testament reminds us, may we be holy as you are holy. So, Lord, help us to walk in your ways as we live in 21st century American society. Help us to be a holy people as your church, as your redeemed people. Lord, bless our church. Bless uh, our members. Bless those who are going through difficult times. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, uh, hands to help those who are going through difficult times. And Lord, may we love you with all of our heart and may we love our neighbors as ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.